Good morning, and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. John's going to join us in just a little bit, but let me just give you a preview of what we're going to be talking about. Um, there has been a long-term project that John in particular and I've been assisting with uh, that we've been working on, and it has to do with the um, manner in which the Public Defender's Office appoints attorneys and the fact that if you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably heard us talking about the fact that there are there is a huge crisis going on, not only in our state, but really around the country. And a lot of it has to do with um, the availability of people that can handle uh, cases. Now, what I mean by that is that there are 35 public defender offices throughout the state, and they're responsible for covering every single indigent case that exists in the entire state. Roughly 40% of the cases that are assigned to the public defender's office have to be more or less farmed out, for lack of a better term. And that's due to a number of reasons. The main one is funding and workload, because the public defender's office is uh, populated by state employees, and there is a you know set number of people that are in those positions, and it's all designated by statutory uh, mechanisms. But in order to bridge the gap where people that need uh, representation, but there is insufficient staff for the public defender's office to be able to handle those cases, as well as the fact that um, the public defender's office in any particular county is an entity, an organization, a party to any case where they do get involved. And there are times when, because there are multiple parties to a particular criminal case where, let's say, there's several co-defendants, or if due to prior representation of somebody who's a witness in the case, they would have a conflict. So that's another reason why there is this procedure whereby the public defender's office will bring in other attorneys. So uh, what's been going on? really throughout the state is that the public defender's office has been unable to, to, because of a variety of things. Um, availability of counsel who are, number one, capable of taking such cases. Number two, willing to take such cases. And uh, number three, uh, how their their efforts, so to speak, are being hampered by um, a number of factors within the system. Now, it's different in, in every county. There's different workloads in every county, but a lot of what's contributing to this problem is that we have statewide policies that can't really be adapted on a local level. So ultimately, what the problem is, is that we have many, many people that are going through the criminal process without who are entitled to public defender representation but cannot get it. Um, there are people that have been waiting for years for their case to proceed. They want a lawyer, um, but there is no opportunity for that to happen. So there's been some developments in that regard. We're going to talk a little bit more about it when, when John chimes in in just a bit here. But uh, in the meantime, uh, just kind of a preview of how those factors all uh, are involved and how they interplay. Um, we hear a lot of people complain about how the system is broken and that there's various different ways that people come up with to try and fix it. 
it usually has to do with you know the simple answer the the sort of your anyone's first knee-jerk reaction to the problems that we perceive in our society rising crime rates uh more violent crime uh you know things that make the headlines things that make the news things that people that grab people's attention and it's very easy to come to the conclusion that the system isn't working and we need to try harder and do more well that's been a mentality that has contributed over the years to uh over incarceration of people specifically minorities but also just an over-criminalization of our society where we have more and more laws, more and more things that people can do that end up becoming criminal. Um, and we often will, as a society, point to a particular issue, a particular case or problem and say, the answer is to be tougher on crime. Now, maybe that is, or maybe it isn't the answer, but it relies upon a lot of theories that are completely hypothetical. And one is that if you can just divide society into good people and bad people and make an effort to uh, put the bad people away in prison, the problem is that it's becoming more and more um, tempting to have that dividing line between good people and bad people. I can tell you that the vast majority of cases that come before any court anywhere in our state, there's a usually a component that relates to um, mental health, as well as, if not uh, exclusively, substance abuse as well. Sometimes there's a mix of the two. And that really pervades all kinds of cases because people make poor decisions based upon uh, other factors in their in their lives. Or sometimes people are accused of things that they didn't do, but because of our fear. The fear that we have that somebody may have done something very, very bad and that we need to protect ourselves from bad things. It's a little too simplistic when you look at things that way. Well, it's very simplistic, let me put it that way. So when people say the system is broken, it, it really isn't because it's working the way that we all have been part of, complicit in, this process um, by allowing it to be focused on guarding ourselves against the fear of, of being a victim of crime. Now, I don't think anybody ever would purport to have a goal that we ha eliminate all crime because that'll never happen. Um, people, for a variety of reasons, do bad things. A very, very small percentage of people out there do bad things because they want to. Um, very, very few people are in that category where they're just criminals because they want to be. We have, I would hope, a much more advanced society than that where there are so many things that one can do with their life and achieve, hopefully, with the support of the community, um, family, friends, job opportunities, stability, and so forth want to be pro-social, want to be a, a contributing member of society, to get that sense of what it means to have your freedoms. And unfortunately, you know, when this emphasis becomes someone's done something wrong, and in order to make sure that it sends the message to everybody else in the world that you can't do bad things, or even be in the wrong place at the wrong time, we need to treat every case as though it's an example for others to follow. 
and, and I find that kind of offensive because it assumes that people are stupid. Um, you know, we basically say, hey, if you're thinking about doing this bad thing, look at what this person did and what happened to him. I get it. There's a place for that. But it's it seems very, very, um, I'm not going to say barbaric, but too simplistic because the factors that go into all this are things that we can address as a society. But in the meantime, we have an emergency, and that is that we've got people that uh, are being charged with offenses, some fairly serious and, and others that are minor. And the system can't support that process because we don't have enough um, support for the idea that one of our basic fundamental freedoms, that is the the right to have counsel, uh, is something that's not being protected because of all these other barriers that are part of the process. Now, by the way, if you don't know, um, to be indigent in our state means you have to have practically zero resources, nothing. Um, no assets. And then we have this other problem where we've seen um, high cash bonds getting imposed in cases, which then results in somebody losing their job, oftentimes having to liquidate whatever assets they do have in order to try and come up with bond money. And then if they want to hire private counsel, that's yet another matter, but let's say they exhaust all their resources and all they're left with is the hope that they can have um, public defender representation. Well, we're take, we're not, so then in that case, we're not just talking about people that came into the system, into this process with no assets and no job. We're talking about people that lose their assets and lose their jobs and then are part of this process. So it could be anybody in any walk of life, in any situation, because it does have the, the capability to um, eradicate a person's financial resources. So, um, John's going to join us in just a bit, but in the meantime, we do have to take a commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. Back with more legal effects. We made it back. We survived. You know, um, it's just, uh, it's just, it's great to, to have these discussions and especially with you because, um, you're, uh, you're a very bright guy, you know? Oh, thank you. And I don't care what anyone says. Okay. <laughs> I still think that. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you were before the break. You were talking about how when criminal complaints are issued and they yeah. certainly yeah. sound nasty in every single case, um, and that's what a court commissioner or a judge has to base their bond recommendation on. Hey, I don't know if you followed, but there was a discussion um, recently amongst criminal defense lawyers about certain judges that have very odd ways of interpreting the statutes that basically, you know, there's a presumption, not only a presumption of innocence, but a presumption of no need for cash bond. That's true. Unless, unless the state can demonstrate a flight risk. Now things have evolved over the years so that, you know, judges and commissioners are allowed to consider additional factors to protect the community. And that, that's fine, whatever. But those are supposed to be issues that are that tap into the multitude of resources that we have in place, like electronic monitoring, like no contact orders, like, you know, a number of different things. And we see time and time again situations where prosecutors come in and they argue for a high cash bond simply because of how what the maximum penalty is for the charge that they came up with. With, without any kind of fact-finding hearing, mm -hmm. and, and even with a preliminary hearing, which, as you know, John, has been 
practically emaciated when it comes to the effectiveness of it due to various, you know, lobbying efforts from on the behalf of prosecutors. But so there was an interesting discussion that was going on about how when somebody appears in court voluntarily and they're demonstrating that, hey, I'm I'm taking this seriously. I got summoned to come in. You told me when to be here. I am here. So then the lawyer says, hey, Joe Schmo is here. State versus Schmo. We're here for our appearance. And we don't think a cash bond is necessary. And some judges have been saying things like, well, I understand that he has no criminal record. The lawyer says, yes, that's correct. Well, then how do we know if he has a history of uh, showing up in court or not, since he's never had to be in court? (laughs) (laughs) So I think cash is necessary because we have no track record. If someone had a criminal record, which is thereby something that prosecutors always argue need to be needs to drive up the uh, you know the cash bond amount because they've got a criminal history. So uh, more than one judge has been saying, well, without that history, we don't know if the person's actually going to show up, even though they did and they're there and that they continue to do so. Well, they don't want to be the next commissioner that let right. out somebody on a thousand dollars cash. And then right. that person runs over a bunch of people at a Christmas parade. You know, Correct. they don't want to be that person. I know. I know. Um, but it's, again, it's fear. When fear drives policy decisions, it's t- you know typically a bad thing. I can't think of a whole lot of uh, policy decisions that were made properly and in, in a sober light without, you know, unless fear comes into play when fear comes into play. I mean, think about how we went in world war two, we rounded up all the Japanese Americans, you know, even those that were U S citizens and put them in internment camps because we were afraid that they were going to conspire with the Japanese. I mean, that's one of the terrible things that our country did, but that's fear, right? True. True. So, you know, that's one thing that pervades the, the justice system is, the fear that's involved, uh, you know, because we all, and it, I guess, it's most really people, manufactured fear. Most it is because it's not based. If you looked at how most cases proceed, how most cases are resolved, how, you know, recidivism works and everything else is a very, very small percentage of people that, you know, we, we truly should be worried about. And I, I'm sorry to say this, cause I know a lot of people probably will disagree on its face, but, you know, in the area of, Sex-related offenses, um, there is a tremendous overestimation of how dangerous someone like that is. And, and that's just because, you know, I've spent my whole life studying both psychology and, you know, the justice system, the criminal system. And, you know, thing that I, one thing I always point out in that realm is that things happen for reasons. And sometimes we have to get to the bottom of what the reason is. And if it's just because we can't look at the system like, uh, let's separate the good guys and gals from the bad guys and gals. But that's essentially what how most people perceive the justice process is that let's single out the people that we don't want to be part of society and get rid of them, ship them off somewhere. And the problem is that, and I'll just give you a perfect example. This comes up all the time. Somebody commits um, a sex-related offense. Okay. They go through the process, they end up getting 
they either plead guilty or they get found guilty and then they get sentenced. And a sentence, if it includes incarceration, well, that part happens. And then if they come back into society, there's a tremendous amount of intensive supervision in those cases. And it's simply wrong, statistically speaking, and in real life, to assume that that person who served a sentence for a sex-related offense is more dangerous than any other person who's walking around who isn't on supervision because there's all these tools in place that basically um, help protect society. But, you know, it's also a lot more complicated than that because, as we all know, uh, if we didn't have substance abuse problems, if we didn't have mental health issues, and if we didn't have unmet needs in our society that we all could be working harder to improve, we wouldn't have anywhere near as much crime. I mean, a vast majority of cases, and I mean even sexual-related cases, there's a substance abuse or mental health component there that was part of what facilitated the circumstances that made it so somebody <clears throat> did something, you know, wrong. And if if we could address those things on a basic underlying societal societal level, we would reduce crime. We simply would, you know, but we put so much money into making sure that people get incarcerated for long periods of time. Well, because, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the optics, the show of it all is, is really what this is all about. The, um, the, the tough DA, the, the tough sheriff, the, the tough AG, the, you know, the, the lock them up state Senator or whatever, you know, and they get headlines and they, I don't know, get some personal um, satisfaction out of. Um, well, right. No, I mean, that's how you get votes, right? I mean, you and I live I in, this, in this system day after day, 24 seven. But if it's something that your experience with this process is only related to the terrible news that comes out every day about bad things that happen, you don't hear the overwhelming majority of cases where people make it successfully through the process and they, you know, they make it through probation or the case that gets dismissed because, you know, the evidence wasn't good enough or the, the cases that result in acquittals, you know, you, those don't make the headlines the same way as the, you know, if you just are a casual reader or you just read what's printed, the sensational stuff is the bad stuff. And the acquittals know? are a regular thing. Um, at least with our firm, at least in the last two weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's you, true. You personally have had two acquittals, and then there was another in one. Seven days. Another that's one true. of our lawyers yeah. um, got one, and it goes to show that you know this charge first, ask questions later is a horrible way to run a DA's office. And um, yeah, I do want to comment on that briefly because you know where we are now in our process you know, our firm and every other firm and the public defender's office and the DA's office, everybody who's, who has a stake is a stakeholder, I guess, in this process, we're dealing with, we're dealing now with all of the horrible backload that was created during the COVID pandemic. And now we're, everyone is doing everything they can to catch up. So, you know, the cases that we've recently taken to trial that have resulted in acquittals, um, they're, three years or more old and you know think about that so in in both of the recent cases that i won the clients were on fairly high cash bonds 
And they could have been sitting in, uh, you know, jail all that time waiting for trial. Um, so, I mean, it's <laughs> just another part of the process that can be so agonizing is the fact that in order to get your day in court, in order to get to that point where, you know, the thing that our society holds as so dear and precious, you know, the presumption of innocence in, or- in order to actually play that for that to play itself out, the only proceeding where it really matters, where you can actually hope to have, you know, that type of vindication is, is when a jury comes back and says not guilty. Well, um, and that just takes so much time and effort and, you know, all that stuff. We do have to take a break, John. I'm sorry. We'll be back in just a moment. So stay tuned. Welcome back everybody. So great, great commercial break. That was a, that was a favorite of mine. I I gave it a standing ovation. Standing ovation. I did too. While sitting, of course, but um, (laughs) it was a virtual standing ovation. So um, Um, what we were talking about was, and the the theme seems to be like the presumption of innocence or lack thereof. This is the way I explain it to jurors. I say the presumption of innocence is where you think of somebody in your life that you know inside and out and you trust 100%. And, and for me, that's my brother or my son. And if somebody said that my brother did some horrible crime, I would immediately say, that's absolutely not the case. That is absolutely not true because I know him and he would, that would just, he would just never do that. That's the presumption of innocence. I presume him to be innocent until you would show me otherwise. So, you know, I'd say, think of somebody in your life like that. And that's the way you should think of every single person accused of a crime. And that's difficult to do because you don't know them like that. But, um, but, but our government does. (laughs) And that's the, I mean, it's supposed to, that's, that's part of what our fundamental freedoms are is that we're supposed to feel free, right? You know, you're supposed to not fear the government. You're supposed to go about your business and not feel persecuted or targeted or any of that. Uh, it has to do with the what we hope to be the quality of life, you know, in a democracy such as ours. Um, I know we talk about this all the time, but, uh, you know, I in my spare time, of which I have none, um, <laughs> I love reading history books. And... Um, I, I revisited an old favorite recently um, about the Civil War, the Battle Cry of Freedom. I'm sure you've heard of that book. Um, and, you know, the, it talks about all of the different aspects of life in America um, as the, the, the competing interests in the future of the nation, future of the union were coming to a head. And of course the, the main issue uh, involved with all that was the issue of slavery, but it, there are also some very dynamic shifts in American society leading up to the 1860s, specifically in the 1820s, 1830s, just economic changes, the growth of education as a uh, realistically available option. But also remember when our country was founded, the concept of liberty was closely tied to land ownership. Right. Right. So <laughs> some argue, um, some argue like liberty or the term happiness um, um, is, is a, um, is, is another word for property. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, that it's a Jeffersonian way of looking at things where 
what they mean by all of that is that one shall not be um, beholden to the government for or for or anybody else for that matter in order to have the means of support where one can have uh, control over their own destiny. The, the idea being that if you are not a laborer, no one else uh, pays you for your time, you own land, you farm that land, or you're an artisan and you create um, through your own skills goods that you sell, you know, the, the idea that you're a self-made person. I, I think they envision that only the people that – were in that realm were the ones that mattered or, you know, theoretically as many people as possible in our country could achieve, strive to achieve that. <clears throat> so the reason I bring it up is because, you know, the haves and the have nots, haves nots, have nots um, in our country have, you know, taken on such a, an amazingly broadened perspective. I mean, how many people are truly independent from dependence on the government. I mean, is there anybody that can say that they, you know, you have to live off the grid um, and find a way to not pay taxes and find a way to not serve in the military and find a way to not drive on roads or depend upon the military to defend you. I mean, it's impossible. There's, there's nobody that's actually living completely independent from any governmental involvement, but you know, still the concepts that were part of that general notion that, that we as uh, landowning white men <laughs> uh, have all these freedoms in order for us to feel good about our country have been, you know, over the years, of course, we had to see do those things apply to other people, to uh, minorities, to women, to people that are actually getting paid by the hour or on salaries, not, not completely independently, um, sustainable economies in individual circumstances. So, you know, there's a bit of a disconnect there. And we, you know, things like, what did the Fourth Amendment mean when we're only talking about people that um, own land, you know, um, if that's really what we're talking about? Well, that's, the, you know, what do you that's the problem with originalism. Yeah. <laughs> Just to take a right, 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 right. giant leap here, because I understand the attractiveness uh, to try and come up with some sort of um, uh, structure, if you will, for constitutional analysis. But to say that we're going to look at everything as everybody did in 1787 or 1868 with the 14th Amendment um, is is kind of ridiculous. You know, it's, it is. it's like human history goes forward. All right. And we're not. We make decisions uh, based on what people thought 200 plus years ago. That's not exactly forward thinking. You know, that's very. Well, and that's, that's another problem with the the recent decision that gutted Roe v. Wade. And I don't mean anything having to do with abortion rights, but it's because Roe had some was a very important landmark decision in the sense that it identified you know, privacy interests that hadn't been explicitly um, gleaned from all the other provisions within the Constitution that forces one to uh, make that realization. So, you know, by taking that away, it really kind of impacts a lot of things, a whole lot of things, um, as Justice Thomas would be inclined to tell us. And, and he likes it, but, <laughs> um, you know, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, privacy, what does that even mean? You know, 
We it doesn't say that anywhere in the Constitution, and it's only something that if you take the bits and pieces of the different um, amendments and say, okay, distill it down, like what is another way that we can talk about being free from governmental um, policy interference with our lives? And you have to acknowledge that there's something beyond just the right to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure, the right to have counsel, the right to remain you know, silent, the right to due process. You know, you have to factor in privacy as this bigger issue, and and that's what they did. I mean, it wasn't just Roe, but it was it was Roe was a, a big part of you know acknowledging the fact that you have to look beyond what the letters and words in the Bill of Rights, again taken in context for the time that it was written, means. And so many other aspects of our lives have, you know, and, and it's it's interesting because it's a very strong. Um, you know, point that's made by people that are tend to be Republican, tend to be right leaning, that the government has should not interfere with uh, individual lives or business owners and how they want to conduct their business and so forth. I mean, that's, that's a very that's a Ronald Reagan Republican. And, and, and that is and that is all over the news right now, because if right. you, if you listen to um, uh Trump supporters and, you know, and, and the, 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 all the folks in the MAGA world uh, about this um, search warrant execution at uh, Mar-a-Lago, um, they're just up in arms about how yeah. this is just persecution, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, of course, it's completely distorting what actually happened. And well, right. And what, what actually happened is still unfolding. But I think you're right, John. And what I'm saying is that the – the uh, reaction to that, which, by the way, for decades, you and I have had the same reaction to many search warrants that have been granted. <laughs> but, but anyway, the one that the fact that this one is catching so much attention, what we're really talking about is, yeah, you know, it offends some people's sense of what's right and wrong based on privacy, based on that privacy. <clears throat> so I heard a very interesting discussion uh, about how. Whenever you hear about police misconduct, police brutality, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, a lot on the right always say something to the effect of, well, if you would just comply with the police, you wouldn't have this problem. Well, hmm. can't we say that to, you know, um, uh, Trump and Mar-a-Lago to say, well, it's a valid legal search warrant. Just comply and, you know, stop complaining. You know, or yeah, yeah. I mean, I I find it intriguing because Congress or whatever it is. No, I welcome the opportunity for people in the public to be scrutinizing. You know how these warrants are issued because the more the more that people know about that, um, you you know, if this does draw attention to the fact that it doesn't take much (laughs) to walk in and say, "Hey, judgey, sign this," you know, uh, I don't know. I think that could be a good thing for all of us. We'll see. Anyway, we got to take a break. We'll be right back. We're back with more legal defense. Boy, we really uh, went around the world on the law. We did. Yeah, we went back to the the pre-Civil War. We went over to, had a little visit at Mar-a-Lago. We, wow, we were going all over the place. Well, let's let's go a little closer to home and okay. the Milwaukee City Attorney's Office. There is a, a gentleman um, by the name of um, uh, Tierman Spencer who was elected um, 
in, I don't know, a couple of years ago um, to be the new city attorney. And he beat a long time incumbent, right? And almost immediately that office, and that is a very important office, by the way, especially in the city of Milwaukee, because they handle a lot of municipal stuff, of course, you know, disorderly conducts, you know, um, evictions, uh, you know, minor minor offenses. So nothing that happens there, you can go to jail. But they also handle, very importantly, they handle civil rights cases against the city. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> um, and those are always in federal court. So while they're in our lowest level court, municipal most of the time, they also spend a significant amount of time in federal court, our highest level of court. And <clears throat> Judge Brett Ludwig, a Trump appointee, has chastised um, he's trying to handle a civil rights case, and he's chastised um, uh, j- the city attorney's office for their incredible incompetence and their inability to find people because they've had um, uh, there's like 35 lawyers in the office, and I think they have had 12 leave in the last year. Hmm. And so they're massively understaffed, and and there's all these accusations of. Um, you know, uh, harassment at the workplace, sexual and otherwise. Um, and, and it's absolute um, in a meltdown mode over there. And so this mm. federal judge went out of his way to order Spencer to personally appear before him and explain why this particular case has been delayed so much because the judge was trying to take a trial and this new lawyer showed up yet again for like the eighth time there was a new lawyer on the case and he had no idea. Nobody told him what the case is about and nobody. Mm. And so he was asking for more time and the judge is like, all right, I've had it with this. And I could think I get the judge's um, uh, frustration. I just thought that was um, kind of, kind of circles back to what we were talking about earlier where, um, you know, the just sort of the chaos in the justice system Compounded, of course, by COVID, but not created by. And um, yeah. this is emblematic of that, you know. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a system run by humans and humans are going to be either very competent or not. And they're going to have biases and they're going to, ha- you know, um, it's it's a uh, it 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 makes what we do all that much more important because yeah. we're the ones believe it or not, they're trying to bring some order to this chaos and some fairness to this chaos. So people don't just get run over by this machine that's been created. (laughs) And hopefully it's so that people can have faith in the fairness of the system. I mean, that's really what we're fighting for every day is to keep it fair. Because if you don't have that, then, you know, what's the incentive to even follow any laws if you think that it's going to be completely arbitrary, you know? why why tell yourself why have morals and ethics if it doesn't matter you know that's that's always been something that um we have to be mindful of and when societies start falling apart it's when that when the populace has no interest in contributing positively to all the other aspects of life and society um so you were talking about um the pandemic. I just wanted to make one other observation about that, that I think also exacerbated the problem. And that is that, you know, we, you and I always talk about um, the trial tax and the plea mill 
and other terms that we use for how the system seems to encourage people to not fight allegations, encourages people to basically give up because of all the other surrounding factors that influences one's decision. And it's, you know, with great irony, I always think when a judge is asking somebody who's entering a plea, like, have they had enough time to think about it? And the answer is always yes, because if the person says no, the judge will say, okay, you're going to trial right now, you know, something like that. Right. But um, it, it, there's a lot of kind of silly questions that get asked in that process. Like, do you know exactly, is this what you want to do? They ask it 27 different ways, just so the record is clear that the judge did everything he or she could do in order to, you know, make sure that the person, that the record is clear on what the person wanted to do. But during the pandemic, when we were not able to conduct trials, there was still in fact, I would say even more pressure for people to resolve their cases because a firm like ours, where people hire us to fight their cases, we ended up with a tremendous backlog. In fact, we didn't really resolve very many cases at all during the pandemic. Well, you know? it's kind of impossible because we don't look for pleas. We look for trials and there were no right. trials. Exactly. So you, if you take that part of it out for you know, a lot of people that are involved in the system, it it may or may not have a huge impact. I mean, if it's, I mean, let's face it, uh, nothing against the public defender's office, but their role tends to be not not that it's defined this way, but it tends to be assisting people in the process of pleading guilty or whatever, or resolving a case through negotiations. That can be done without a trial. But you know, the thing that always makes it so, at least in in my many years of experience, and I know you too, the thing that puts the focus on a just outcome is the uh, fact that a jury trial is there as the right of a defendant that he or she can exercise. I mean, that puts everything in context. I know that during the pandemic era, when there were no trials happening, it, it was virtually impossible to try and negotiate not having the ability to take a case to trial well, that's because prosecutors trial, the tr just so everybody understands the trial, that's the pressure point that forces well, them should to, that forces the state to actually pony up and say, all right, um, this is our evidence. And, um, well, and not only that, John, but it forces them to look at the evidence, ah. which typically they don't do until uh, they have to. That's so true. That is so true. And that sounds terrible, but I, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to prosecutors about, you know, when they figure out that a case isn't just going to, someone's not going to walk in and, and ask graciously to plead guilty to something and that they're going to exercise that right, that they're given as an American citizen, like, oh, well, I haven't really even looked at the evidence yet. Or, I well, there's all these recordings in here. I, I don't bother to listen to those. I mean, and I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying that that's the caseloads that people are dealing with. And it's true. The, the majority, a lot of cases do end up being resolved short of trial. So, you know, when the DA's office is trying to allocate their uh, resources and stuff. But, you know, outsiders to this process probably have no idea that um, – the fine tuning, the actual drilling down into what the case is all about, where you actually talk to the witnesses and you actually examine the, the evidence carefully. And you really, really look to see, wait, what, you know, do I have problems here? That doesn't happen until, you know, the, the 
time and trial pressure and everything else forces uh, the parties to do that. And, you know, it's happened to me before, too, where I'll have a client that I know I've got a particular perspective here. I know what the what the version of events is. And then, you know, as we're getting closer, yeah, we iron out those things and say, wait a minute. Hey, there's an issue here. We got to talk about this. But that doesn't happen on the other side. And, and it can't without there being trials, because otherwise they just look at the complaint that they wrote up based on the police reports they received. And they say, Oh, this looks pretty bad. Uh, I guess I, you know, there's no realistic discussion about what the dynamics of the trial look like. And so that, by the way, should all have been done up front. You know, well, in an ideal world. Yeah. When you make a charging decision that affects somebody's Liberty, uh, you should know what you're doing and you should be confident. I mean, they have an ethical duty to only bring charges they know that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And that just is not the real world. That is not. And those are just words, John. You know that. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I'm just explaining for lay people that, you know, that watch Law and Order, you know, and they think that, yeah. you know, they have one case and they really are confident about it. And, you know, it's, Yeah, I love how in Law and Order, like, you know, the, something happens and then like within, you know, two weeks they're in, they're doing a trial. You know? right. um, <laughs> I know. And, um, and it's like it's their only case. It's the judge's only case. It's, you know. Uh, yeah. How about, how about in my cousin Vinny where, uh, you know, he drives down to Alabama or Georgia, wherever they are, and. You know, the whole process of <laughs> getting the discovery, doing the preliminary hearing, and going to try it all takes place in about three weeks. I mean, yeah. it's just boom, yeah. you know. And he wasn't a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, and, and, right, exactly. <laughs> so, hey, dude, we got to wrap it up. So, right. um, time to go, but you can tune in, you meaning our listening public, uh, every Saturday from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend. Everybody. Have a great one.